Welcome to tonight's Bible study. We are in week two of Acts Plus. I'm Muriel. I'm one of your pastors. Glad that y'all are here. We're going to take just a couple minutes. I started the stream just a little bit early so folks can trickle in and join us. Um, I will. I know some folks are watching on Facebook. Some folks are watching on the website. Some folks are listening on the podcast. So for those of you who are here on Facebook, I'll do my best to keep an eye on your comments and such um, from the page as we go. Um, but wherever you're joining us, glad that you're here. Oh, some of us here already. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Feel free to tell us who you are, where you're joining from, how you're doing. get started in just a minute. Glad that you're here. Last week we were diving into um, all things from the Psalms, one of the most beloved books of the Bible. We've got a new topic this week, the book of Job. It is a fascinating one. Hey Chris, glad you're here. Hi everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We'll get started in just a minute. I wanted to give folks time to trickle in and join us. Glad you're here. Feel free to say who you are and how you're doing, where you're watching from, anything you already know about the book of Job. Uh, it's got a bit of a reputation, but um, also a little bit of a best kept secret type book. Hey Sandy, glad you're here my friend. All right, let's launch in. Welcome everyone to Acts Plus. So this is a Bible study out of Unity Lutheran Church where I happen to be coming to you from live this evening. We are in the lovely Brookfield, Wisconsin where it is a balmy, let's see, I think it was 15 when I got here. Oh, four degrees. It is a lovely four degrees here in Brookfield tonight. So a nice night to be in and cozy and doing Bible study together. I'm Muriel, I'm one of your pastors. And whether you're joining on Facebook, on the website, on the podcast, live after the fact, we are glad that you're here. This is a good time to learn together. So this Bible study is called Act Plus. It's a seven week study and it is based on um, our, one of our trimesters that we do with our confirmation program for our 7th and 8th graders. And so they do a trimester on Old Testament, but it mostly stays um, in kind of the narrative stories and the histories. Um, then they do a trimester on the Gospels, and then we get to this trimester, which is called Acts Plus. So it covers Acts, which is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It covers um, a lot of Paul's letters, and it covers what we're in right now, which is just um, two books from the Old Testament that are kind of unique enough to deserve their own um, their own spotlight. So this week we're on the book of Job, and the book of Job um, is one of the most mysterious books in our Bible. And uh, I think this is arguably one of the most important nights for our confirmation students when we get to it. And um, I'll tell you why as we go along. But think of some of the questions that we hear sometimes or that we think ourselves, um, especially when something hard happens. Why is God punishing me? Why is God allowing this to happen? What did I ever do to deserve this? Why do bad things happen to good people? Where is God? 
when bad things happen. So the book of Job delves in to all of those tough questions. And um, the way we frame it for our middle schoolers, which is not a bad way to frame it for all of us, um, is just that life happens and life can be very unfair. So usually we start um, by talking them through, um, do any of you, are any of you familiar with the book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? So this is a childhood classic. Um, it is a fantastic book and it is kind of a modern day Job. So uh, if you're not familiar, I'd love to, gosh, I'd love to read you the whole thing, but um, so the book is it's a kid's book and it's about a boy named Alexander. Um, and when he wakes up, um, things just go wrong from the very first minute. So he says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth. Now it's in my hair. When I got out of bed, I tripped on the skateboard. I dropped my sweater in the sink with the water running and I could already tell it was gonna be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his cereal box, and all I found in my cereal box was cereal. And then he says, I think I will move to Australia. So then the day goes on from there, and he has to sit in the middle of the car for the carpool, and the teacher doesn't like his artwork, and his friend says that he's not his best friend anymore. He's not even his second best friend. He's only his third best friend, to which Alexander says, I hope you sit on a tack, which is a really great, really great insult. Um, he has to go to the dentist. They find a cavity. Um, the elevator door closes on his foot, and... Um, you know, the whole day just goes wrong. He has to wear the pajamas that he hates to bed. And at the end of the day, he says to his mother, this was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And his mom says to him, anyone remember? Some days are like that. Some days are like that. That is her great wisdom. So we will come back to Alexander and terrible, horrible, no good, really bad days in a minute. Um, but let's jump back into Job and just a couple things about the book of Job. Um, it, it is a story. It is an, uh, like, um, it's a teaching story. It's not describing some, a historical thing that really happened. It's a fable um, to teach a point. And um, it is not like any other text in our canon. It's written in its final form about 2,500 years ago, but actually the beginning and the end are even older, like several centuries older. And this is because the book of Job is a frame story, which is like a story within a story. Um, and so what scholars have pieced together is that whoever wrote it, they took an existing folk tale that everybody knew about a person who gets tested um, by a wager between God and the devil. So they lose everything and then they have their fortune splendidly restored at the end. So that was a, a folk tale that was common in the ancient Near East. And this poet took that folk tale um, and used that as the frame and then inserted in the middle 39 chapters of poetic debate between Job and his so-called friends about why these things are happening to him and where God is in the midst of it. And it's kind of incredible that the book of Job is even included in our Bibles because it is, it is very different than what the Bible says in many other places um, on the theme of suffering. 
So there's a lot of places in the Bible, like the book of Proverbs would be an example, um, that talks about rewards for the righteous and punishments for the wicked. Um, and the book of Job is just a straight up challenge to that theology. We don't know anything about the author. It, it seems that it was originally written in Hebrew um, just because um, the poetry is, is such high level poetry. Um, it, it makes such extensive use of rhythm, of wordplay, of sound play. So all of that makes it seem like it's, it, Hebrew is its original language. And for those, all those same reasons, um, the translation of the book of Job is just incredibly fraught and difficult and sometimes parts to sound really uh, weird to us and it's because people are just trying and, and really failing to translate this incredibly exquisite and detailed poetry into another language. But And, and so it's remarkable that even with all those translation difficulties, um, still the words in, in English are still powerful. So just try and imagine even more so in their, in their original sound. Um, so it, it's not specific to the nation of Israel at all. It doesn't talk about Israel. It doesn't talk about covenant. Um, it doesn't use the Israel-specific name for God. So it was probably one writer working alone. Um, and so picture like, like a bold, dissenting thinker. Um, but they are a poet of such genius. And the book that they write in Job is so powerful that from very early on, Hebrew readers felt like they could not live without this book, even though it totally disagrees with so many other parts of the Bible. So um, it starts with two, two chapters of the introductory frame story, um, and, and we're going to go through that in a minute. Then Job speaks, and there's a bunch of rounds of debate between Job and his friends, and then God speaks um, at the very end. But um, let's read some of it. <laughs> Susie is saying it was very confusing reading and trying to translate it. Uh, well, we'll go through some of it tonight and, and see if that helps. But really, again, glad you guys are all here. Welcome, Acts Plus, going through the book of Job tonight. Julie's here. Melanie's here. Susie, Mary. Wonderful. Wonderful. Glad you're all with us. Let's hear a little bit from the book of Job. Extra points to any of you who read some of it uh, for this week. All right, the book of Job. There was once a man in the land of Uz. And um, that formula, that's how we know that Hebrew formula that they're translating as there, was, there once was a man. That tells us that this is like an existing folktale. There once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, spelled Job. Um, the man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. All right, so here we pause and we stop. What do we know so far about Job? Well, we know he's from Uz, um, which, um, Different scholars have tried to place it, uh, and there are theories about where it is, but, but it's, it's clearly written to be, not, it's not specific, to, it's not written to be specific to a geographic area, it's supposed to be just kind of a general folklore. So he's from Uz, um, he's blameless and upright, that's their way of saying, he, like he's a really, he's a good person. 
um, the seven seven sons and three daughters that was supposed to be like the ideal perfect number of children to have and the perfect gender distribution because um, you have the daughters to help with the female chores and the sons to help with the male chores and pass on the family line so he has the perfect number of children and he has he has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 donkeys, tons of servants, so he's very successful. He's got a large family, and he's got a lot of possessions. Now then, God and Satan, and Satan's the evil one that they say Job turns away from, God and Satan are talking, you know, as they do. And Satan's been wandering around the earth, and God does a little bit of boasting. He says, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan's kind of poking back and saying, Job is faithful because his life is easy. If life got hard, that devotion would melt away. So what if everything was taken away from Job? Would Job continue to love and trust God if his life is falling apart? Is his faithfulness genuine? So God's reputation is on the line now and God agrees to the test and says, um, Satan says, stretch out your hand, God, touch all that he has. And if you do it, I bet he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord says to Satan, very well, all he has is in your power. So God, according to the story, remember this is the folklore that is this common fable, turns Job's fortunes over to Satan. And here's what happens. One day, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and carried them off and killed the servants with the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while that messenger was still speaking, another one came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while that messenger was still speaking, another one came in and said, the Chaldeans formed three columns and they raided the camels, carried them off, killed the servants and I alone have escaped to tell you. And another messenger comes, this is not looking so good, another messenger comes while they're still speaking and says, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking and suddenly a great wind came, struck the house and it fell on the young people. They are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. So in one fell blow, Job loses all of his property and all of his children. Wow, that's a bad day. So, um, what happens? What is Job's response um, in this situation? Will he remain faithful to God? Here's a man who, through no fault of his own, is experiencing horrible, horrible times. And you can tell, right, that this is written as a teaching story by, by the parabolic, super exaggerated nature of the, the things that are happening to him. Will he be faithful? Here's Job's response. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there, for the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrongdoing. Wow, okay, Job's still faithful. Pretty impressive, my reaction would have been a little bit different. But all right. What do we think is going to happen next? Could things possibly get worse for Job? Well, here's what happens next. Uh, let's see. Satan comes back to God. God's like, look, Job's still being faithful. You were wrong. He is a totally righteous man. Satan says, uh, 
you only inflicted his things and his other people. If you inflicted him himself, then he would totally curse you. So the Lord says, very well, he is in your power. So Satan went out and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Job took a pot shard with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Whew, rough. So now we meet Job's wife. Does Job get comfort from his wife? Here's what his wife says. She's, she's my kind of woman. Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not the bad? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. Okay. Now, that was his interaction with his wife. Does Job get support from his closest friends? Here's what they do. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, they each set out from their home, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Man, there's some great names, you guys. Save those if you're going to need to be naming any children or grandchildren in these days. So three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, set out, and they met together to go console and comfort Job. That sounds, that sounds promising, right? Now, somewhere in here, they sit with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one says a word, for they saw his suffering was very great. Somewhere in there, Job seems to kind of snap. And um, then we get to chapter three, which is where Job speaks, and, and it is his lament um, and his anger, and he curses the day he was born. This is how it reads. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said a child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let that night be barren. So I wish I was never born. I wish I had never been born. And um, I think some of us in our darkest moments have had that feeling as well. I wish I had never been born. It's, it's even more profound than I want to die. It's like I wish, I wish none of this had ever happened. I wish I hadn't even been alive to experience all of this. So... After that, Job goes on and, and his friends, he debates with his friends. And we have a bunch of chapters where Job speaks and then a friend responds. And then Job speaks and then a friend responds. And while it was clearly well-intentioned for them to come and support him, the words that they say to him are not very supportive. And, and basically, uh, what we tell our confirmation kids is that they think if these bad things are happening to Job, he must have done something wrong. He must be being punished for something wrong. And, and so his friends actually go as far as saying that Job should be glad that God is disciplining him because it shows that God loves him and wants him to have another chance because surely a just God would not let an innocent person suffer. So here's a little bit of a quote of what one of the first friends says. How happy is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. He wounds, but he binds up. He strikes, but his hand heals. And so then we just say, now think for a moment, if you were sitting in your grief 
and your loss and your lament and someone says, this is God disciplining you. Be happy that God cares about you enough. Ouch, ouch. And so we talk with kids and here's part of why I think this week is so important. So think middle schoolers, but think us too. Well-intentioned words can be incredibly hurtful. And all too often in this world, they come in the name of God. Well-intentioned words can be incredibly hurtful. And so we want to give ourselves permission that just because somebody says something in the name of God, or just because somebody says something with good intent, we can check that. We don't necessarily need to let that in. And I think of like, for example, um, a woman that we talked to who had just had another miscarriage um, and and a really well-meaning friend said, you know, God, God just wanted that baby to be to be in heaven with him. And whew, when we try to explain unexplainable pain, we often compound hurt with more hurt. So we'll come back to a more Christian, a more biblical way to respond to pain at the end of this. Um, but this is something that we have kids think through about well-intentioned but hurtful advice. When is support not actually supportive? And so um, any of you think for a minute, you can share it if you're on Facebook and you want to, but think for a minute um, of a time when well-intentioned support was not actually supportive. I mean, there's, you know, there's like the, um, the passive aggressive compliments. Like I remember, <laughs> I remember a volleyball teammate in college being like, oh, what did she say? Oh, this jersey is way too big for me. Here, Mo, you, you have this one. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. That hurts when you're in your 20s. Maybe still does. So there's those little jabs. Um, and then there are times when, when people um, just are really well-intentioned, um, but in attempting to explain and blow past our pain, they really kind of make us even more isolated and more alone. Um, so I love that our confirmation kids think through all of that. Um, so for you, the way we frame Job, at least for middle schoolers, is, is to think of times when, when life seems unfair. So take just a moment and think about, we give them the categories of at family, at school, with family, at school, and with friends, um, but think at work. Um, you just sub work for school. So think of with family, with work, with friends. What are times um, that's when life really seems unfair to you? So we lift up the examples of, you know, you work really hard to study for a test um, and maybe don't do that great and someone else doesn't study at all and does a great job. Or like I think of with my sister, who I love dearly, she's younger than me and just generally seems to have her life more together than me. Um, so like when I moved to Milwaukee, I really, really struggled, really struggled. It took me a long time to feel at home here. And so when she moved, 
to another Midwestern state. She moved to Michigan, and I remember telling her, like, Emma, I just want you to prepare yourself. It's going to be really hard for a long time, but, like, don't worry. You'll get through it. And she moved to Ann Arbor and, like, immediately loved it and found these amazing new best friends and was so happy. And I was super jealous. And again, when I became a mom, I had a really hard time at the beginning with Alice. And so when my sister was about to become a mom, I said, you know, Emma, like, just prepare yourself. It's going to be really hard at the beginning, but hang in there and it will get better. And of course, she has, like, the calmest, chillest, easiest baby in the whole world who was sleeping through the night from, like, I don't know, five days old. And so that makes me really jealous. It seems unfair. Life seems easier for some people than others. Um, and then on top of that, there are, you know, the unexpected circumstances, deaths, losses, health conditions that all seem really unfair. So as Christians, how do we interpret those events in our lives? And here's what we talk about with the confirmation kids. Um, see if it works for you. See if it works for you. We tell them that why questions are really tough. Why questions, why me, why did this happen? They almost never have satisfying answers. Um, they assume truths that aren't, they assume fundamental truths that like aren't true, like that we have control over the things that happen to us, that life is fair. Um, and why questions almost always lead to blame, right? And whether we're blaming other people or blaming ourselves, blame is just, it's just never, ever helpful. It is so toxic. So we talk about instead of why questions, ask where questions. Where can I learn from this? And most of all, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? And that's exactly what Job does. So um, at, after all this debate with his friends, Job finally has, he speaks last, and he demands an answer of God. He demands to see God, and the poet draws on um, language from, from the legal world. I want a hearing. I want you to have to go on the witness stand, answer my cross-examination, and, and answer why you've allowed this to happen to me. I want to speak to you face-to-face. -face. I want, I want I want an answer. I want an answer. I want an audience with you. Um, and so then, at the very end, God speaks back. God speaks back. And here is what God says. Let me read a little bit. The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind and said, Who is this? Who is this? who darkens counsel in words without knowledge. And I'm now reading, by the way, from a translation um, that's based on the Hebrew scholars, so it will sound a little bit different than maybe what you were reading, but it, it's meant to capture more of the original, original Hebrew. Who is this? Who is this who darkens counsel in words without knowledge? Gird your loins like a man that I may ask you and you can inform me. Where were you when I founded the earth? This is God responding to Job. Where were you when I founded the earth? Tell, if you know understanding, who fixed its measures? Do you know? Or who stretched a line upon it? In what were its sockets sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the children of God shouted for joy? Who hedged the sea with double doors when it gushed forth? 
from the womb, when I made cloud its clothing and thick mist its swaddling band. So it's talking about God as the creator and midwife of creation. I made the breakers upon it my limit. I set a bolt with doors upon the sea. I said to the sea, thus far come and no further. Have you ever commanded the morning? Have you ever appointed the dawn to its place? Have you ever come into the springs of the sea, to the bottommost deep walked about? Have the gates of death been laid bare to you? Have you seen death's shadow? Did you take in the breadth of the earth? Tell if you know it all. Where is the way that light dwells? And darkness, where is its place? That you might take it to its home and understand the paths to its house. And it goes on and on and on. And if the poetry that is used for Job speeches is incredible, and it is, um, rarely has human anguish been given more powerful expression. The wording used for God's answer is even more epic. And it just brilliantly evokes the like complex interplay of beauty and violence that is the natural world. Now, people have criticized it, God's answer. Um, they've said that it's like cosmic bullying, right? Because it's this big, powerful God who's kind of telling off Job. Um, and, and it is. Um, and, and people have also said, it, but it doesn't give a specific answer to like undeserved suffering. And it's true. It is not an answer to people who believe that life should be fair and should not be arbitrary. But this poetry, what it does is it exposes our human limits. It exposes the limits of our understanding and in incredible cosmic terms that pull on the natural world that we all know, it uses that natural world to remind us, to prove to us that whatever is happening in our lives, God is so much bigger, so much bigger than all of it. So much bigger. And it paints this picture of a vast creation that's just shot through with unfathomable, unfathomable paradox. And this creator God, who's been there, from beginning to end, whether it feels that way to us or not, still the morning stars sing, to, sing together. I love that. The morning stars sing together. So what do we learn from Job? What do we learn from Job? Well, a lot. And a lot of what we learn is, is unlearning, right? A lot of what Job wants to do it is help us let go of, and the scholarly word is theodicy, that is the study of suffering. The book of Job is challenging us to let go of theologies around suffering that do not serve us. When we try to assign meaning and purpose to things that have no meaning or things that are unexplainable or so unbelievably painful. We hurt ourselves, we hurt others, and we end up creating this limited and warped image of God as one who punishes, um, as one who, who, 
who gives us events in our lives equal to the amount that we earn them. And that is just not the life that we experience. So earlier in the pandemic, we have, we have a student at Unity. Um, she had just finished the confirmation program, so she had gone through this course. Uh, and while, right after she finished confirmation and, and while her brother was in confirmation, their mom died of brain cancer. And so think about at that age in your life, going through this curriculum and reading this book and, and think of the, think of the well-intentioned hurtful things that those, that people said to try and comfort those kids, to try and comfort those kids. And, and none of it, none of it makes up for the fact that their mom is gone. Their mom's gone and she's not coming back. So the older one, she's an artist, and she designed a sermon illustration to go along with a sermon that we did on the book of Job. And what she did is she's, she's a, um, I don't even know what the term is, but she does like computer art on the computer with computer programs. So she designed uh, like a time-lapse video of making art. And what she did is she started by just putting a ton of random dots kind of random dots on the page. And she said, this is like, this is the, these are the things that happen to us in our life. Um, and we, uh, most often we don't have any control over them. Things just happen to us, random dots, random dots. Um, and when we try to ascribe meaning to those random dots too soon, we get into trouble. And we end up thinking that we have more power than we have, or that God, um, I don't know, it, God has more power than God has, or, or that God it has like an overly simplistic vending machine type of relationship with our lives. So she starts with these random dots and then the dots were in black and white and then she starts using, using color to connect the dots and she weaves between them to make a picture. And, and so she turns what originally is a random scattering of dots into a tree, a tree that is planted and growing and spreading its branches. And this, um, this is going one step further than Job, but this she said, so this is like how God is involved with the events in our life. Events just happen to us and, and we really, we hit a hard place and we go to the whys. We don't have a why for those dots. But God, what God does is comes in and uses whatever scattering of dots life has handed us to make something beautiful. So God does not cause bad things to happen to us, but God then works to redeem and restore and transform what happens to us to heal us and bring life to us and life to others. Another way of saying it is you might have heard the saying, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. And I think many of us uh, have felt that we have often been given much more than we can handle. Um, and so amend that saying, cross that one out, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. And, and turn it around to say, God helps us handle what we've been given. So what the book of Job does is it directs us away from those why questions 
It doesn't explain why these tragedies happen, but it says, first of all, it's not God's fault and it's not your fault. It's not a punishment. God is not ever a God who punishes. And instead of giving um, an explanation for why they happen, which all the friends try to do, you, you must have deserved it. You must have done something wrong. They steer us away from explanations and they steal us to a God who is so much bigger than whatever it is that we're facing. So the last thing we do with our confirmation students after you know, diving into some of this really hard stuff with them is we actually have them paint rocks. And I would love to be all in a circle with all y'all and paint some rocks together. Um, but short of that, if you have a rock around your house or as you're out in the world this week, see if you can find a rock somewhere. It doesn't need to be remarkable, any, any little pebble, any little something. Find a rock, stick it in your pocket. And as you hold that rock, Think of the words from Psalm 62, verse 6, which reads, God alone is my rock and my salvation. I shall not be shaken. God alone is my rock and my salvation. I shall not be shaken. Friends, whatever is on your plate right now, God is so much bigger than whatever it is that you are facing. God will be with you. God will speak to you out of the whirlwind. God will be there from beginning to end, even and especially in the face of our uncertainty. So when we bump up against the limits of our own understanding, don't be afraid of that. That humility and our willingness to admit our lack of control and our lack of understanding, that is what opens us up to a God who is so much bigger than any easy explanation. So thank you for joining us tonight as we go through the book of Acts. I'm just going to jump ahead and see what we're looking at next week. I think we are going to hop over um, to the book of Acts, I believe. But let me see if I can find it. Um, obviously, I didn't look far enough ahead to give you homework for next week. Let's see. Next week, February 1. We Oh, great. We are going to be looking at the story of Pentecost. Oh, that is such a good one. So we'll be in the book of Acts. That's Acts chapter 2. Um, and Acts chapter 2 is actually an intentional bracket to the story of the Tower of Babel. So, actually we do know your homework ahead of time. Here's your homework. Look up and read the story from the Tower of Babel. Mm, that must be in Genesis, near the beginning. Um, and then go to um, Acts chapter 2 and read the Pentecost story. So we'll do kind of an intro to the book of Acts in general and then dive into that story in particular. Um, that quote, again, for your rock um, is from Psalm 62, verse 6. God alone is my rock and my salvation. I shall not be shaken. 
friends, go forth into this world, refuse easy answers, be at peace even in mystery, and know that God is your rock and your salvation, and therefore you will not be shaken. Go in peace, my friends. I look forward to seeing you all again next Tuesday. God bless.